attached to my legs. I wouldn't be in this ridiculous position. Now remember, Chewbacca, you have a responsibility for me, so don't do anything foolish. What's going on, buddy? You're being put into carbon freeze. What if he doesn't survive? He's worth a lot to me. The Empire will compensate you if he dies. Put him in. Princess, you have to take care of her. You hear me? Huh? My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and that was of course a clip from The Empire Strikes Back. I'm recording this uh, three days after Carrie Fisher has died and sadly her mother too the following day and just what an awful awful year 2016 has been for celebrities. We had George Michael as well of course on, on Christmas Day and now you know Carrie Fisher who didn't recover from a, a massive heart attack she had and so young as well really and she was um, a massive part of my childhood I, I, I distinctly remember having quite a crush on Princess Leia and that scene from The Empire Strikes Back which is my favourite scene in all of film history I can literally re-watch that moment time and time again and yeah it just really saddened me this one I think it's been quite a depressing year it's been a hard year in many respects as well both for me personally and, and, and professionally not kind of in a kind of crybaby way it's just been a few ups and downs relating to work and other factors and that I, I kind of I suppose I got kind of immune to all these celebrity deaths but the um, Carrie Fisher one I, I think really really saddened me so um, a rather depressing way to start off the podcast I appreciate it. I've been off the airwaves for quite some time I have actually found a way now of managing to sort out uh my kind of work-life balance and being able to record more and I'm hopefully going to be able to get kind of a formula down where I can get more shows out and I always say it but um, I really do feel quite positive that this time I'm going to be able to crack it and um, it's not going to be a particularly long episode today um, I'm going to be taking a look at Louis Theroux's documentary My Scientology Movie which I actually recorded that um, a few weeks ago and I never got around to putting it out and then, and then since then the film's actually been released on DVD and is available to view on Amazon um, I think it might be also on BBC iPlayer as well so um, that's one you can catch up on I'll be looking at the new Darden Brothers film The Unknown Woman and taking a look at Star Wars Rogue One So let's kick things off then with a film about everyone's favourite crazy cult. It is Louis Theroux's My Scientology Movie. since 1987 have been the chairman of the board of Religious Technology Center. I would take it down a notch. Okay. Because I think that went a little too conversational. We know we can't get the real Miscavige. Oh, can I just give you a, a letter? Wait, I've got... But we can create our own Miscavige. Do you need a push? Maybe. I was the baddest ass dude in Scientology. The hierarchy of the Church of Scientology was absolutely at the beck and call of me. This is the reenactment of which we've been talking about doing, and, and Marty's here. We've got actors, and we've got our set, as discussed with him. Welcome to the hall. You fuck up one more time, I will rip your fucking face off! motherfucker! Don't look away! He's got it. <laughs> He's got it. Is that something he would say? Scary, huh? Little bit. Yeah. 
They're trespassing. We have a permit. It's fine. Four hours of the same car being behind you starts to look a bit suspicious. How you doing, Mr. Squirrel? And Wait. I don't want him filming me. Well, you're filming us. Tell him to well, stop. Well, you tell him to stop. Tell him to stop. You tell him to stop, and I'll tell him to stop. Are you making a documentary as well? Okay, so my Scientology movie. Now I'm going to kind of offer a kind of a preface before I talk about this film. In relation to Scientology and its claim that it's a religion. Now, I think it's fair to say that when I first heard about Scientology, I was immensely interested in the church and, and what it actually did. And the fact that there was a kind of secrecy surrounding it did kind of make it quite alluring and the more I read and the more I heard about it the more I began to realize that it didn't seem so much to me as a religion moreover it seemed kind of like a self-help organization that also resembled a FTSE 100 corporation the glossy videos the rather spectacularly named buildings that Scientology has um, I noticed they've just recently completed Superpower Base in Clearwater in Florida or Gold Base in California. And, and its creator was, of course, L. Ron Hubbard, who himself was a science fiction writer. Who, and I have to say that I've never actually read any of his books. I'm not familiar with Dianetics, the, the book that started the whole kind of Scientology movie. Um, I know that some, uh, some appalling films have been made um, Notably, John Travolta's Battlefield Earth. So I can't possibly comment on the man's writing style, but it did seem quite strange to me that a science fiction writer who I, I'm not I'm not sure how much I believe this quote, but um, I think it was along the lines of something: if you ever want to become a millionaire, you, there's there's no you should start your own religion. Um, it all seemed slightly spooky to me, and the more I kind of delved into it, and then the more I began to read books about kind of former members of the Church of Scientology, I realised that it was a something of an oddity in in its kind of position as being um a religion and it, i think it's open for a wider debate as to you know, kind of what a religion is i mean if i some people will claim scientology is a personality cult but i could say you could apply exactly the same kind of logic to any of the world's uh, monotheist religion and I, I don't want to sound like i'm defending scientology but it does kind of make me laugh when people who who kind of dismiss it as being a ridiculous load of nonsense, who then claim themselves that they're actually Christians. I mean, let's be honest, I, I, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe some pretty incredible things, such as, you know, the entire population is descended by someone who had sex with a clone made from his rib. And that's just one of the more milder instances of uh, unbelievability in the Bible. And, Likewise with Islam, I was once in um, a taxi with a Muslim who, a Muslim driver, and he was telling me, without any form of irony whatsoever, that he was fairly convinced that the Prophet Muhammad had invented television. Um, now, were I to mock him, I would probably be labelled Islamophobic. Were I to mock Christianity any more than two, I'd probably be told that I was being massively intolerant. But with the Church of Scientology, for some reason, it seems to be fair game for people to take pot shots and sniper. And in many respects, it does. It is utterly ridiculous, but it's no more ridiculous than any other religion out there. And the fact that some people refer to it as a cult as well, I find quite interesting. If I managed to convince 50 people that um, I could communicate with Elvis by sitting on the toilet on a Friday eating cheeseburgers and I, w I would be a crazy cult leader, but if I managed to bump up that to about half a million, half a billion people, say, for example, then it'd probably be recognised as a religion and I would get a load of tax breaks and whatnot. So the fact that there is a kind of, I suppose, in the religious community, a kind of slight scoffing attitude towards Scientology does amuse me in a little bit because I think it's, um, you know, oh, you with your stupid stories about intergalactic warlords and then there's a load of people kind of going on about how the world was created in six days by a benign creator it's all rather ridiculous to me i think what i'm basically trying to say is that all religions are, are ridiculous and scientology the fact that it's a relatively new one i think it kind of becomes the whipping boy as it were which is perhaps a little bit unfair which isn't to say that it isn't a load of complete bollocks because everything i've read about scientology would um lead me to believe that it's the creation purely of a 
um, very inventive, gregacious personality in the form of L. Ron Hubbard. How, however, after Hubbard's death, the church was taken over by someone called David Miscavige, who has aggressively pursued the church in becoming legally recognised as a religion, which I think was probably done for tax reasons, I would, I, I would dare say that. And it's always been synonymous, really, with kind of courting celebrities and big, glossy adverts. And this has become a source of much fascination with writers and especially documentary filmmakers. And most notably, the BBC's John Sweeney, who seems to have kind of a... Uh, He's been on a personal crusade against Scientology for a long time, and I've seen some very interesting films he's made. There was one in particular, one where he um, absolutely explodes at a Scientology spokesman who's been basically kind of harassing and getting in his way for a few weeks. But Scientology is very much a closed entity. They don't like journalists. They don't like uh, having being the subject of films, and they will pursue people very rigorously through the courts and through other means in order to science them and and this i think makes and this makes scientology all the more interesting because i've never met anyone who hasn't said they would love to know what it's all about and of course one of the big blockers about knowing everything about scientology is that it is a pay-as-you-go religion you have to do a series of courses and buy materials and most of the people who end up leaving the Church of Scientology will openly admit they spent thousands, if not millions, of pounds and dollars in their time at the church. The, the film director, Paul Haggis, is a very notable one. And I would, kind of as a companion piece to my Scientology film, I really would recommend watching Alex Gibney's Going Clear, which, although I enjoyed, I don't think it kind of went as deep as I thought it was going to. And herein lies, I suppose, one of the the issues that I have with a lot of Scientology films, because they are so uncooperative, what you tend to get when you talk about them is they almost come with their own set of conventions. There's always the kind of the introduction to the craziness of L. Ron Hubbard, a brief mention of the various celebrities, pay a sequence that will pay lip service to the apparent good that the church does in the wider community and then you'll begin to kind of be eased into the darker side of it former def defectors talking about their time the amount of money they spent the, the fact that they witnessed some shocking abuse sometimes being meted out by the the uh, scientology director-in-chief i think he's called or something like that uh, david miscavige and then it kind of settles into a very kind of similar routine and what Theroux has done in this in my Scientology movie to kind of move it slightly away from the standard Scientology film is that he reenacts scenes which have been culled from people's claims about what they have witnessed or from the very rare footage of Miscavige giving lectures or appearing on television or court documents and essentially has actors play these scenes out and this is all done under the supervision of a senior former Scientology official called Marty Rathburn. Most of these reenactments focus on the violent actions of the church leader David Miscavige and apparently what was witnessed at the Gold Base facility in California. And it doesn't take long before the Church of Scientology get wind of what is going on and they begin turning up and following through. There's always a sense with through that he's simply standing by and watching the action unfold. And I don't think it could be really further from the truth. I just think he has a very relaxed and unassuming demeanour. But certainly in my Scientology film, he knows how to press their buttons. He goes to Gold Base and hangs around outside. And as the members of the church come out to confront him, he kind of uses kind of pure logic and a healthy dose of humour to kind of really show just how ridiculous they're being. There's a rather brilliant scene where he's arguing about whether or not they're allowed to be filming on the road. And some extremely nice, friendly police officers turn up to discuss where exactly they're able to stand. Now, I think it's worth mentioning that Theroux didn't set out to make the film this way. What he wanted to do, really, was to go into Scientology and actually have a genuine look at what they do. But of course, 
this wasn't going to be possible. The church had absolutely no interest in working with him. And from what I understand, one of the teachings of Scientology is that um, that came down from Alan Hubbard is that journalists are basically the worst people in the world. So the church is extremely hostile towards them. And what was amazing during the make um, during whilst I was watching my Scientology movie is just how creepy their practices are. And this is something I feel the film really plays upon. The score of the film itself has definite undertones of science fiction, kind of thriller, conspiracy stuff. And when these people turn up and just simply stand there filming them, Theroux does the only thing he can do, which is he starts filming them back. And it makes for some extremely awkward and amusing situations of him and people from science, church Scientology asking each other to turn their cameras off. And it doesn't help the Church of Scientology that the fact that the people who are doing this don't realise how bad it makes them look. And I think this is one of the key aspects of the film to really understand because because sometimes when we talk about religion, I, I think we lack empathy in really understanding people's motivations for doing what they're doing. I would urge you to listen to a recent podcast that Sam Harris put out in which he went through an ISIS magazine called Dabiq and read testimonies from ISIS members as to why they do what they do. And the, that's the matter is we try and ascribe reasons for this behaviour, which I think fit our own agendas. And when it comes to Scientology, there's a kind of a belief that these people are just mad and crazy. And there's, a, there's an element that and there's almost an element of kind of pointing at them and mocking them. And I actually witnessed this firsthand once when I was walking past a Scientology centre in Manchester. And I just saw two guys go in there and start hurling abuse at the staff. And I thought, how disrespectful and rude, because the problem... The, the issue is that these people genuinely believe into what they've bought. So, and the fact that when they turn up and start filming through, and we see something as well, which is called, which isn't, isn't I think the term in church Scientology is squirreling, in which they go to Marty Rathbun and just hurl all kinds of strange abuse at me. And it looks, it's, it's creepy. And it, it, there's no other way to describe it as being extremely threatening behavior. And what we have to understand is that the people that are doing it are doing it because they genuinely believe that this has to be done, regardless of how bizarre and strange it looks to those on the outside. And where my Scientology f and film and other films of its kind, I think, struggle, and it's, it's as much as the church is to blame for this as well, but I really want to know about those people. I want to know, I want to find out their relationships with their family. I want to find out what jobs they do, what they've got out of being in Scientology. And Scientology itself won't allow this to happen. So we only, I think, get a very shallow look at them, which is we see them doing this. And then we just say, oh, they're crazy or they're, or they're bonkers or what have you. And it, it doesn't really do anyone any favours because we've seen this time and time again in all films about Scientology and that for me was one of the things which I found slightly disappointing about my Scientology movie and it isn't the filmmaker's problem after all that they can only they can only do what they do but and I think there's a sense with my Scientology film that there's quite a scattergun approach to what they were really trying to achieve I personally think that by putting on these reenactments, what Theroux was doing was really just kind of gently poking them in the ribs and letting them come to him, which of course what does happen, but what do these reenactments really tell us? Well, firstly, I think credit has to go to an actor called Andrew Perez, who ends up playing Miscavige, who does it with a terrifying intensity, um, with a bit of makeup and doing his hair. He, could, he really fits into the character. And this is all done under the tutelage of Marty Rathbun, who was kind of like the head enforcer at the Church of Scientology. And as the film goes on, you begin to question, really, the motivations Rathbun had for leading the church. And then through begins to kind of gently poke him and probe him, because what's going on in the film when these people are turning up and what they're doing to Rathburn in his private life, which is filming him in all kinds of strange places, these are the practices 
that he himself had invented. And there's some moments where Rathburn is really trying to coax the inner rage out of Perez. And these scenes are absolutely brilliant as Theroux looks on. And But what I took from the film was that and as Rathburn kind of orchestrates these various reenactments of scenes from which have been which he himself has recalled or from other people or from just from kind of Scientology practice I think what you see is the fact that Rathburn hasn't left the church I think for theological reasons it's I think it's more apparent that he might have actually left because he fell out of favor with Miscavige and that this somehow kind of dented his ego because he's standing in the church wasn't what it was and as Theroux begins to kind of probe this you see another side of Rathburn where he does become quite animated and agitated and I felt that the film began became slightly confused as to what direction it was doing and what it was actually really trying to say that isn't to say I didn't like my Scientology movie I really really did enjoy it I laughed out loud several times um, the people who I was watching with in the cinema seemed to find it very funny as well and there's just something about Theroux where he, he makes pauses between people excruciating at times and he seems to have this kind of slightly unnerving way of looking at people with a completely blank expression and what tends to happen is I've, I've witnessed it before where if there's kind of a pause some people feel compelled to talk and the more they talk especially in his films the more they kind of reveal each reveal themselves and you do have little kind of gems and nuggets of information that comes out of people that really kind of reveal who they really are. It's part of the art of being um, in documentaries, I think, is, is knowing when to kind of become involved and when to just let your subject do the speaking. And Theroux has absolutely nailed that approach over the years. He's one of the few documentary filmmakers who takes an active part he's, he's as much a topic of his films i think as his subjects are and i think that's a good thing um, i can't really think of many people who are able to do it as well as he does and i suppose it's a, a opinion slightly to my kind of patriotic sensibilities but there's there's scenes of kind of almost kind of monty python-esque ridiculousness to 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 the film which i think only through being british can really communicate he he doesn't get angry with them. He doesn't. The, the the film doesn't suddenly have dramatic music playing when a car turns up. He just says things to them which just highlight how ridiculous they are in this kind of low key, unassuming British way that I really really enjoy. And it works because this film. I think it was about an hour and forty minutes long. It absolutely flew by. It was tremendously entertaining. I just felt that, and it, again, I don't think it's the fault of the people making the film. It is the fact that Scientology is so impregnable. We're only ever going to really be able to kind of make, and it's definitely a noble attempt on the Scientology subject because of their own practices. I don't think we're ever going to get as deep as people want to go because let's be honest, there is something about it. There is something, there's that little kernel of interest that it sparks in you. And we want to know more about it and I just don't think for and unless someone like Tom Cruise decides he's going to leave and that would just be amazing if he came came clean and sort of confessed to his time and what he'd learned about it that would that would be amazing but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon I definitely think this is a good companion piece to Alex Gibbon is uh, going clear um and I can heartily recommend my Scientology movie just don't expect this one to be the game changer perhaps a lot of people seem to seem to have said it is or have kind of expected it to be but what you will get is a tremendously entertaining funny film allô oui ah bonsoir non non on ouvre pas on a déjà dépassé d'une heure oui excusez-moi je devais Bonjour, vous êtes le docteur Dava Oui. Ben Mahmoud, brigade judiciaire. Il s'est passé quelque chose de grave On a trouvé le cadavre d'une femme près du fleuve. En face, où il y a les There is one topic that has been hard to escape you this year, and it is the current migrant and refugee crisis that is currently happening in Europe. It has become an issue that is virtually impossible not to have reasons to debate on the subject. 
advocate open borders and you're a deluded liberal. Say the borders should be shut and you're a racist with no compassion. The fact of the matter is at present we have neither or. And as such, a steady flow of migrants and refugees are making their way to Europe. How we deal with this seems to be something of a referendum on the psyche of the people within the given country. In Britain, we had Brexit, which was for many who enjoy simplicity, simply an assertion that Britain is just a massively racist country. In Germany, the locals flock to stations with refugees, welcome signs and flowers, superficially suggesting that the country was full of open-minded, generous-hearted people, all willing to open their country to whoever wants to come. Both are utterly ludicrous associations. Neither is an entirely accurate barometer of the moral compass of either nation's populace. And in my own experience, people's views on the matter are far more complicated than simply saying yes or no to allow people into a given country. I have been somewhat fearful of how the world of film and television will react to this, to the refugee and migrant crisis. A fear which is based on what I could see of a flurry of films being made in wallowing in liberal masochism. The idea that we in the West are solely to blame for what is going on and our callous indifference to human suffering is a blight on us all. Lilianian's cringeworthy apology to the inhabitants of the jungle camp in Calais further alarmed me that this deluge of Oscar bait trash would occur. And today it has not, although I rather suspect it may well be on its way. To date, the only other film I have seen with regard to the crisis is Jim Franco Ross's excellent neo-realist documentary Fire at Sea, which worked so well because it didn't so much deal with the why or the how, instead it just focused on the fact of the matter that this is actually happening and people are very tragically dying. So what, if any, does an individual in Europe actually have in the way of culpability when it comes to the migrant refugee crisis? By virtue of the fact that the vast majority of people, myself included, do nothing to actively help these people by either giving to charity or harassing our leaders or actually helping them directly, are we all due some kind of mass existential guilt? Will there be a period in time that does not reflect well on all of us? with our casual indifference to the suffering of our brother man. Well, who knows? Right now, it seems there is so much white noise around the topic. It's hard really to what to make of it all, but it didn't surprise me in the least that the Belgian-born Dardenne brothers would visit the subject with their new film, The Unknown Girl. Often heralded as social realism filmmakers, they are a rarity in my opinion that they managed to make films that actually reflect the real trial and tribulations of real people, as opposed to a fantasy world of modern urban hell as often presented by misery tourism filmmakers who themselves know as much about modern urban dwelling youths and low-income families as I do about the far side of one of Pluto's moons. In the main, the Dardenne brothers stick to what they know. Their old films are always set in the same place, um, Sereng in Liège, and their background in documentary filmmakers brings an intimate, fly-on-the-wall type aesthetic to the trials and tribulations of the characters they portray, who, depending on the story, come from various backgrounds, both poor and upper-middle class. Their last film, Two Days and One Night, felt strangely lacking for me. Perhaps I just wasn't in the mood for it. I have since found the film was based on a true story, and indeed the more I read about it, the more impressive it has become to me. And when I was revisiting it in preparation for this film, as well as some other films by the brothers, I have come to really appreciate their work even more. Two Days and One Night strips the geopolitics, the big bank, the public faces of the financial crisis, and shows who is left in the real world. For its lead character, played by the excellent Marion Cotard, it is the reality of a work sector stripped of solidarity. There are no unions by which to protect her. The economic climate is one of rugged individualism in which companies delegate the livelihood of others to the staff. The simplicity of the story highlights the bankruptcy of all involved in the crisis of 2008. It was, after all, ordinary people who suffered. I also watched their film The Sun in preparation for this episode and I have to say I certainly think that is possibly their greatest achievement to date. It was a mesmerising film for so many reasons. I have to echo Roger Ebert who said that, he, I think he said it actually changed the way he thought about film as he was watching it. It certainly did me. I know I can safely say it's one of my favourite films ever. I can't wait to go back to it but Moving on to The Unknown Woman, the film focuses on a Dr Jenny Gavin played by Adele Hanel, who one night along with her intern Julian played by Oliver Bernard 
are working late. Jenny has to chastise Julian for his poor reaction to a young boy who has suffered a seizure. When the door buzzer suddenly rings, it's too late to answer, Jenny tells Julian. How, if they are tired from a hard day's work, can they give the patient the best diagnosis? And, ostensibly, they can't just be at the beck and call of their patients. The next day, the police arrive. The person buzzing was an illegal immigrant who has since been found dead. Jenny admits to Julian that the real reason she told him not to open the door was because she was simply trying to put him in his place. Because he wanted to, she said no, just because she could. Overcome with guilt, Jenny begins a single-handed quest to find out who the girl was and make sure her family know what happened to her. Now, the, un the unknown girl has many familiar Dardanelle Brothers tropes. The visual style is all present and correct, with the camera firmly focused on the mid-shot of its subject. It's a directorial style that forces you to pay even more attention to the actor's performance. There is literally nowhere for them to hide. You are placed with them with a microscopic intensity throughout. They seldom give you a shot-reverse shot structure to scenes, instead preferring to either remain on one subject or slowly pan to the other during the course of conversation as the focus of the dialogue shifts, or we move towards someone else's reaction. However, I actually believe this approach doesn't serve the unknown girl in the same way it has their previous films. Often the Dardanelle brothers establish a situation that has a natural sense of dramatic tension to it. In the sun, we are waiting for the lead camera protagonist to tell the child that he knows he is the killer of his son. The film's final 20 minutes are virtually unwatchable. The immediacy of the camera, the sudden cuts on sound, the building sense that something truly awful is about to occur gives it an almost Hitchcockian run for its money in terms of the tension it creates. Similarly, the kid with the bike lulls you into a false sense that the titular child has managed to escape his past only for it to come back and haunt him. It is a moment of you you half suspect may happen and its lingering threat shrouds the film in a nagging sense that the film's early events are going to leave us with a tragic epilogue. And of course you have two days and one night that has a similar narrative construction as the lead character Sandra frantic, leads a frantic effort to save her job in a race against time. Its finale, of course, utterly shattering. Urgency, therefore, complements the stories the brothers tell and how characters react to them. The Unknown Girl does not have such a pressing time constraint, it is instead a murder mystery of sorts. Jenny is trying to solve in order to address the guilt that she has for being responsible as she feels for the girl's murder. The motivation there is primarily one of doing the right thing. As Jenny is told by her former mentor, she should have opened the door, and yet she knows the reason she didn't was simply to play a silly game with Julian. The reason she has such a dynamic with Julian is the fact that I think it's suggesting there may have been a past romance between the two. And it is, for the most part, one of the film's most intriguing subplots. Yet Jenny has, in bringing the personal into her work, in fact exposed her own failings as a professional, the results of which have been utterly tragic, yet her attempt to ease her conscience are poorly handled by a script that is too reliant on contrivance. Her role as doctor comes with the privilege of her profession. She is able to rely on patient confidentiality and also exploit it. In one clever scene, she is able to deduce someone is lying by the rise in their pulse when she asks specific questions relating to the case. Yet these moments are far and few between. Much of the confirms of her flashing a picture about the unknown girl that moments later just happens to be in front of the exact right person she needs to speak to. Of course, her work is not actually appreciated by the actual police, who admittedly don't seem too bothered by the case, but ultimately her avenging angel persona makes it a kind of social realism version of Death Wish. Dardanelle Brothers films often rely on repetition, albeit in showing someone's daily routine or the use of the same location over and over. Here the case is solved, so to speak, by the constant returning of a single family of whom Jenny is the family doctor. Each time the complicity of the family members escalates into a rather melodramatic show showdown that felt forced to say the least. Adele Hanel's performance did not help the film either. Jenny at least admits the motivation for not letting the girl was an exertion of power, yet it's a rare insight into Jenny and for the most part she's sullen and dowdy, and though unlikable would be unfair, I found it hard to really feel anything for her more towards other than the fact that she was other than the fact I wanted to know what happened with Julian, who was sadly not in the film a great deal. Critics have been quite quick to say that The Unknown Girl represents a departure from the brothers from their normal fare, which is something I don't actually necessarily agree with. 
Most certainly they have established a very clear voice in the world of film, and I am entirely confident if I knew nothing about who directed this film and was asked to work out who had made it, I would be able to. Where I feel the unknown girl departs in the Brothers Priest work is that it is far in advance the weakest script they have ever filmed. The unknown girl feels like an idea surrounded by a half-baked plot, and in truth I'm not entirely sure what the film is actually saying, or indeed if it's actually saying anything at all. Clearly the inclusion of a migrant being murdered would seemingly point the film in a certain direction, yet there is a hint of something far more philosophical going on. Jenny by chance, or lazy screenwriting, manages to randomly find the murdered girl's sister. Now it transpires that it was her jealousy toward her sister that may have led to being in the position where ultimately she became to be murdered. She, say, she shares then common ground with Jenny, whose own egotistical behaviour has played its part accidentally in the death that has occurred. The pair have unknowingly colluded in helping the unknown girl be murdered. The idea that our behaviour has consequences is therefore very real in the film. If we knew the outcome of what we do, would we act any different? Possibly at this, now this may be a stretch, the film is telling us that in the case of the migrant crisis, this is something whereby we cannot not know the result of our actions. As thousands die each year and many more go on to live truly miserable lives when they do get to Europe, we, can, we cannot feign ignorance to the truth. We could metaphorically open the door and do all we can to help these people integrate into our societies, reduce the risk of death and hardship. Only we don't. We may be moved by the sight of a dead child on the beach, but ultimately our guilt leads to misplaced gestures of apparent help. As is with the case of Jenny, her quest is ultimately selfish. It makes her feel better. In the long run, it does nothing to any real greater significance other than reaffirm her belief that she is inherently a good person, as signified by the film's closing image of her helping an alien patient down the stairs. And indeed, the unknown girl didn't work for me because ultimately, unlike the brothers' films, it felt like a strangely hollow experience. There was a more interesting story somewhere in there. Yet as it stands, the unknown girl skirts around bigger issues and more interesting character development and is for the ultimately a rather standard exercise in personal redemption. All being said, it does have some Dardanen brothers moments. The brothers have an expert way of making you think something may or may not occur, and even when it does occur, it still manages to shock you. Sudden bursts of violence are often lurking under the surface. The scene where Jenny confronts a man in a caravan played by uh, regular collaborator Olivier Gourmet had me on the edge of my seat, partly because I know how he normally acts in their films, and because often characters in their films are allowing basic interplays to conceal moments of narrative importance under him by characters whom we don't really know how they're going to react. Despite all this though, ultimately it's a hard film to truly get behind. If you like the Dardanelle Brothers, there are nuggets there, but having watched The Sun in preparation for this, I can honestly say discovering this gem was the best experience of getting of watching The Unknown Woman. Now, as I understand, the film is out quite soon on um, DVD and Blu-ray by Artificial Eye here in the UK. I think it's scheduled for um, an end of January release. I actually didn't see it at the cinema. I watched it on um, Curzon's on-screen um, demand facility at home through my um, Amazon Fire TV up in my projector, £8, and I think this is something which I'm really going to look to exploit in 2017. Um, the films, the, the cinema that mostly shows this type of films, uh, it's called Home in Manchester. The screening times are, on the whole, not conducive to my lifestyle, really. I normally finish work about four, and I can either most films sorry either begin at like 3.50 or something like 6 o'clock and if you're on at 6 o'clock it means waiting around in town so really this Curzon Home Cinema is a is a godsend for me and I really think it's something I'm going to be getting way on board and um, the quality of the streams is really good Um, it's not surround sound I think it's two channel sound but um, it's not you don't really need it for a film like this but yeah definitely if you live in the UK do get on board with that so that was the Dardanelle Brothers The Unknown Girl on your own from the age of 15. Reckless and undisciplined. This is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel. We have a mission for you. We want to help. This is our chance to make a real difference. 
can't face myself if I give up now. I'm not used to people sticking around when things go bad. This is the first for me. Okay, so another Christmas and another Star Wars film. And this is going to be it now for the foreseeable future. Uh, I certainly hope that I don't review a Star Wars film every Christmas and I try and at least be a little bit um, original. But I, I, I would imagine that the, uh, the desire to go and watch them and talk about them will become too much for me. But, of course, last year we had... The Force Awakens, which was the Star Wars franchise reboot, really, now in the hands of Disney. And over the course of the past year, I've gone from really liking The Force Awakens to being, I guess, slightly more cynical about it. Its comparisons to A New Hope are simply too much to ignore. I do have issues with the fact that there seems to be something incredibly safe about every single decision that has been made in the film and ultimately I found it ever so slightly hollow as a, as a, as a, as a film it didn't really resonate it doesn't resonate with me on repeat viewings a couple of moments possibly but on the whole I think we're going to judge it based on the next two films if they don't go places where the franchise hasn't gone or at least be a little bit more daring with the story I think The Force Awakens and indeed, these new um, Star Wars saga films, I don't believe they'll ever be as ridiculed and as hated as much as the prequels. But I can see that in the kind of the mists of times, people's reaction to them might be slightly more meh. Well, of course, one of the plus points about Disney buying Star Wars is that we're going to get Star Wars stories. And this is actually started now with, of course, Rogue One. And I have to... Uh, preface this by saying I will be spoiling this film quite considerably during the course of this conversation and this really captured my attention I have to say um, obviously we know from the title scroll from A New Hope that the the, the events of, of Rogue One have, have, have taken place prior to that film starting and as a child I can honestly say and this is no word of a lie I used to wonder about those, I used to religiously watch Star Wars, and and I would read that that moment in the title scroll, and I would imagine what had happened. I, I would fill in the gaps myself. So I was really genuinely excited that when Gareth Edwards was announced as director, and that this film was going to be made, because I could really see a sense that it was going to take me back to my childhood. I would, I would I used to even reenact the battles with my Star Wars figures when I was at the tender age of six and seven, or however old it was, but. I was really excited about Rogue One, and I'm a big fan of Gareth Edwards as well. I, When I first saw Monsters, it was one of my favourite films of that year, and of course he went on to make the excellent Godzilla, and he seemed like a really good choice for director, and I like the fact that he was a British director coming in as well, because you know, I suppose my, my, kind of my patriotic sensibilities kicked in, and when the cast was announced as well, I was immensely pleased that Felicity Jones is going to be at Diego Luna. I really like Mads Mikkelsen. Forrest Whitaker, I find can be... I, I either love him or hate him in most things that I watch. Um, the truly god-awful The Butler, which was one of the worst films I have ever seen, kind of tarnished my Forrest Whitaker love, but... He seems to have kind of won me back over again with uh, his performance in this, which we'll get on to in a little bit. But what of the film? Well, the first thing I want to address really is this notion of what is a Star Wars film? Because I've heard many a criticism of Rogue One from people saying that it's not a Star Wars film. And I really want to kind of destruct, um, sorry, deconstruct this term here, what is a Star Wars film? Because what is a Star Wars film? I don't like the idea that any film that has the, that comes under the Star Wars banner should kind of feel that it has to apply to any kind of conventions or that it has to behave in a certain way. Because if that happens, there's a real danger, I think, that the franchise will kind of go into the same territory the Bond films do. And don't get me wrong, I really like the, the, the Bond films, but let's be brutally honest with you, they are incredibly formulaic. <laughs> they don't really kind of tend to deviate much from the given path. And I don't want that for Star Wars. I think that the 
universe itself has such creative potential that to suggest that the filmmakers who are going to be working on these films have to kind of have a checklist that they have to kind of check off in order for it to be officially established as a Star Wars film is ridiculous and I think creatively very limited. And I'm pleased to say that Rogue One, I feel, does deviate quite considerably from the normal Star Wars canon. I think the first thing to really get off the chest is that Rogue One is a really old-fashioned war film. And again, that was another complaint that I heard people making. I personally have no issue with the fact that this is a pure bulls-out war film. It reminded me of something like Where Eagles Dare or The Dirty Dozen to an extent. And it's so much better for that because it isn't hampered by the fact that this is setting up another trilogy. It is completely its own thing. Of course, the premise of Rogue One is the stealing of the Death Star plans by Felicity Jones or Jin Erso, whose father has been roped in, played by Mads Mikkelsen, to actually design the super weapon for the Empire. The character Galen Erso reminded me of a kind of Dr. Oppenheimer figure, someone who's been drafted in to create something which is ultimately completely terrible. And what I loved about this character was that the older I've got, I suppose, when I watch New Hope, I always find it vaguely ridiculous that the Empire made such an ultimate weapon with such a really kind of obvious flaw in it. And what Rogue One does is I think it complements a New Hope and it also adds a kind of, I guess, a kind of a, a, kind of a logic to it. Because when you find out that he has gone back to work on the Death Star and has kind of committed his act of resistance against the Empire by deliberately building in a fault, that enriches the Star Wars world. And I found Rogue One was full of these types of moments. There's something in all the Star Wars films, I think, about teaching us about sacrifice and what it means. And I guess to say that I just lauded the film for being different and not adhering to Star Wars conventions, but it certainly harkens back to them. I'm not going to say it's completely kind of gone off the tracks, as it were, but... There's always a, a moment of sacrifice in these films um, that you see repeated again and again. And I think it's one of the bravest character and character choices to make the fact that Galen has decided that he's going to carry on his awful work, knowing what awful things this weapon will be capable of, but also playing his part in the resistance by building in this fault. And that, I thought it was a really clever nugget to infuse the entire Star Wars universe with. And of course, Mads Mikkelsen, I think, has a brilliant screen presence. He always does. And the moments um, at the start of the film where we see um, Orson Krennic, the director of the Advanced Weapon Research for the Imperial, and that's played by brilliantly, I think, by Ben Mandelson, um, turning up to Galen's farm, which, I, as I understand, was actually shot in Iceland. This is some of the most beautiful imagery that has ever I think been put onto a Star Wars film and credit must go to cinematographer Greg Frazier because it reminded me in a way of at times Prometheus and um, which for all its flaws I think is a beautiful looking science fiction film and also established the fact that Rogue One is taking place in a slightly darker part of the Star Wars universe and I don't mean kind of darker in the kind of the Christopher Nolan sense but I think there's a certain weight to this film that I didn't find in The Force Awakens. And there's a real sense that there is a lot on the line for the characters. You get the sense of the Empire being a really oppressive regime through the galaxy. And the other aspect, which I really reinforces, was the scale of the film. And the way you would see something like a Star Destroyer hovering over a city. And the fact that you can kind of imagine how oppressive and awful a world this would be to live in. I'm currently re-watching The World at War and some of the early footage of kind of the German occupations in, in the various countries that they conquered really mirrored what I was seeing in Rogue One. I don't like to judge a film by how good its special effects are, but the, the visual effects here are simply stunning. They're the best in the series so far, um, which is kind of, kind of strange, really, bearing in mind that this is kind of obviously kind of a, a, a prequel of sorts to A New Hope. But that's not to say, I think, that Gareth Edwards' 
swallows the consumes the film in CGI. I think it's used perfectly. Obviously, in a, in a in a film of this nature, most of what you're seeing on screen is going to be an effect. But he knows how to use special effects. He knows how to make them not just look pretty, but really add dramatic impetus to the story. I think in particular that brilliant scene um, in Godzilla where they parachute into that kind of monster war zone with the music from 2001 playing. And in a film about a giant monsters fighting each other, the scene that stands out for me is parachutists moving through clouds with flares going off on their feet. Absolutely cracking stuff. And Rogue One didn't seem to be suffering from the blight of most blockbusters where you just throw as much as you possibly can at the screen to impress people and I'm thinking of something like Man of Steel which begins with this huge massive fight and you're thinking well how is it ever going to kind of top that and the, the entire film seems to be about being bigger and bigger all along whereas Rogue One I found has obviously massively impressive battle sequences, but it's also able to kind of remind you of the subtlety of special effects. You know, the Death Star rising on the coming over the horizon and just seeing its awesome size out of the atmosphere. It was to me, it was captivating and at times completely jaw dropping. And I think it is a necessarily sombre film because what you have with the characters, especially as well. Um, Diego Luna playing Cassian Andor, who at the start of the film, I, I, I genuinely believed he was going to end up being a a double agent or something like that. In fact, I was dreading that to happen, to be honest with you, because at the start of the film, you see him kind of basically murder someone so that person doesn't make a noise. And instantly I was like, well, this is really showing us the weight and the responsibility that are on the rebels. These people aren't pacifists. They're having to do what they have to do in order to win this war. And and as the motley crew of Rogue One was assembled, headed, of course, by uh, Jyn Erso, the, the, the brilliant Felicity Jones in the film. Um, now, I had an inkling that something was afoot with this this band of soldiers because... The fact that Rogue One is its own thing and the fact that we don't hear any of these characters, again, especially when obviously we have like Mon Mothra and things like that, but the fact that there's no other reference to these guys in any of the other Star Wars films led me to believe that the crew behind Rogue One were going to do something quite daring. And, of course, they did actually do it, much to my surprise, which was they killed everybody. And I almost didn't believe it um, with that moment where the Death Star fires at the planet and it seemed to miss by quite some miles. And of course, you had this mushroom cloud heading towards everybody. And I was thinking any minute now, they're going to get they're going to get rescued in any second now. This is going to be absolutely fine. And I, I kind of believe that because there was footage I saw in the trailer, which wasn't in the film of the TIE fighter um, flying up next to Jin. I thought oh, they'll, they'll all jump in that. Everyone's going to be fine. And. Much to my surprise and much to my delight, I suppose, everyone was killed. And when I say delight, it wasn't because I didn't like the characters. It was because I feel like Rogue One isn't shying away from showing us that bad things can happen in films. And rightly show, it, rightly so, it, it shouldn't do. I feel one of the issues with modern blockbusters is, is that they have lost their weight. They don't seem to have as much impact on me as they do and it's because there seems to be a kind of fear I suppose of being too miserable or too downbeat and certainly what Rogue One does brilliantly I think is it sets up that incredible last 10 minutes where it does give us um, I, I suppose a triumphal ending of sorts because we know what follows because obviously we're Star Wars fans and we know A New Hope but to kill off these characters, I really have to salute the filmmakers because this isn't a film really for generation wimp. There were, when, when that moment happened and the, the, the mushroom cloud enveloped them all, um, I heard audible gasps in the cinema, which is a good thing. I haven't heard a reaction like that watching a mainstream film for a long time. Rogue One has, it reclaims, I think, apocalyptic imagery and character fallibility take for example Roland Emmerich I mean 
yes, I, I have openly admitted that I enjoy 2012, but it's a ridiculous. He destroys the planet on a regular basis, and it's for fun. And it's always a way of giving characters for something to run away from. Um, and yes, I lasted about 20 minutes of Independence Day Resurgent, and I couldn't carry on. It was that bad. But here you see like, the, the Death Star, for example. It's not just destroying planets. It's destroying something which we ourselves can identify with, which is mainly being used to destroy cities. And we are living in a quite uncomfortable times. But let's be brutally honest. If, if someone like Islamic State got hold of an atomic weapon, they wouldn't think twice about using it. Yeah, I live in Manchester. There's, why not nuke Manchester if they had the opportunity? And I, I, I really have to applaud everyone involved from, from the writers to the directors, to the producers, for allowing this to happen. And you just see this, the moments where kind of the Death Star's news, and you know, Edwards will cut from the ground to space to show the, the destruction. And unlike kind of your Michael Bay's and your own Nemex, there's an actual sense that this destruction has consequences. The first city to be vaporised is the Jedi spiritual planet, and you can possibly stretch and see a kind of an Aleppo analogy here, but... And at least felt the film was taking us out the comfort zone. Now, there is going to be, I think, a, a desire to politicise Rogue One slightly. And I have kind of seen it. Um, of course, we now live in the world where Donald Trump is now the leader of the free world. And in the wake of this political upset, there was a surge online of disgruntled voters proclaiming themselves to be the resistance. They were going to kind of fight against Donald Trump. We had the cringeworthy people who went out on the streets afterwards to protest that you know, he'd won a, an election um, and was democratically elected the leader of that country, no matter how they don't like it. And Trump's view for America is certainly not one that I would actively want. However, that's what it's going to be. We're going to have to get used to it for the, for the next few years. And we, we do live in an age where somehow there's a kind of form of masochism going around where people believe that the West is the most evil, awful entity on the planet. And most notably, it's America. You know, it's the worst of the worst, even worse than Russia, even worse than China. And it's entirely ridiculous. And I've seen and I've heard natterings online pertaining to the fact that Rogue One is somehow an allegory of the fight against the evil of America. Like somehow America is the empire, the evil empire. And... It's ridiculous when you think about it on any level. I mean, America doesn't do anything on the scale that Russia does, for example. But somehow we managed to convince ourselves that, yeah, it's the worst of the worst. And it's, it's garbage. I just recently watched um, John Pills' new for, uh, film, The Coming War on China. And, of course, being a John Pills' film, it does make a lot of salient points um, and some much-needed critiques of America. But... Yet the idea that America is somehow the sole, sole kind of menace to the world is frankly ludicrous. And the idea that I, I have read it and even people in my office were sort of saying, oh, you know, you can really identify or you can really make the parallels between the characters in Rogue One kind of rising up and fighting the Empire and the, the Empire's America. Um, I don't believe it. I, I think it's completely nonsense. And I... I I really would urge caution in going down that rabbit hole. And there's there's another angle into the film as well, which is that Rogue, uh, Rogue One is now kind of being seen kind of like the anti-Trump film in the fact that he, obviously he kind of his misogynism and his racism and Rogue One and its casting become kind of a kind of a fuck you to the anti-political correctness brigade. Well, I don't think it is either, and I think Rogue One is following in the Star Wars div, um, tradition of having quite a diverse cast and strong female role. Uh, strong female roles and I see I suppose the empire is a little bit white male orientated but at the end of the day there are galactic fascists so it's hardly surprising equality isn't on their on their list of agendas um, I did notice actually and I, I even sighed at myself that moment um where the, the brilliantly uh, cgi'd uh recasting I suppose or reimagination or reanimating of Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin. I didn't see any women amongst all those designers and I thought, you know, that they really need to work on their quotas to have um, equal opportunities going on in the Empire. And th that's another subject as well, which I want to kind of briefly touch on, which is this uh, bringing back actors from the dead. Um, people will... 
it was actually quite funny because the person I saw the film with didn't realise that Peter Cushing was dead um, and did actually ask me on the way out, who is that guy? And I, I couldn't help but laugh at him. So I won't, I won't reveal who it was on, uh, to, to you all. But it, it, it says a lot that it was able to force him. And obviously I know that it was fake because I know it was Peter Cushing, but it didn't bother me in the least. Um, it didn't take me out the moment seeing that CGI character. I did feel a little bit uncomfortable because I, I, I want to know to what degree his family were involved um, or his estate, as it were, in allowing this to happen. Because let's make one thing clear. This isn't a Peter Cushing performance as such. This is more a creation of a Peter Cushing performance. And I think it's really important that, firstly, there's some kind of ethical boundaries established here. Um, I, I don't think filmmakers should have free right just to bring back whoever they want. And secondly, we need to be very, very clear of ourselves when we kind of we, we say, "Oh, you know, Peter Cushing." And Peter Cushing isn't in the film. This isn't his character at all. It's just a it's a creation, a computer. And um, I certainly, obviously, there's animation, which, of course, I, I would say there's a massive difference between someone like Woody in Toy Story and this this creation of Peter Cushing because Woody is. A, He's, an, he's a, an actor that's being, I suppose, he's an actor of sorts that's being directed CGI and given a voice. And because he hasn't existed in the real world or in any way before, we kind of accept it as far more as, as, as being its own thing. But bringing back Peter Cushing as Grandma Tarkin, this is just how Gareth Edwards perceived how he would be acting. And it certainly isn't acting. And I don't want it to become, I don't want this to become too. Um, prevalent in filmmaking. I don't want to see a film with featuring with Steve McQueen in it. I don't want to see the sequel to Bullet um, be, being made with a, a, a CGI Steve McQueen. I think it's a horrible way of. Uh, I, I think it would destroy the craft of acting. Actually, and I think we need to be a little bit careful about what happens with this. And of course, now with Carrie Fisher dying, um, and obviously she does make an appearance in this film and longer self. You know, will she be coming back for the other Star Wars films? We don't know, but I, want, I would like some sort of ethical boundaries to exist for this to happen. One thing I do feel that Rogue One had going against it was it has a slightly muddled middle third, and that's not really that surprising, I don't think. Obviously, it has to set up what the MacGuffin of the story is, and then we have to get really to that kind of final third, which was excellent, by the way. Some of the, the best sequences I've seen in a Star Wars film. Um, it does plod a little bit, and of course, we have to have kind of the speech and everyone getting hyped up, but possibly it's slightly too long, at just over two hours and ten minutes, I don't know. You know, could they have tightened things up? I'd be interested to know what these reshoots were, um, and I, I certainly hope that um, we see, though even, I would like to see another cut of the film, perhaps that would be quite interesting. I doubt um, D Disney would do that, but I certainly hope on the Blu-ray that comes out we get to see what was kind of chopped in those alternative scenes. What is lacking, I guess in a way, and it was certainly I felt it with The Force Awakens, is sexual chemistry in the film. It's rather as if uh, romance is dead in the Star Wars uniform, and I think that's a massive shame because, I, and I know that the the, the 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 premise of the film is you know it's something slightly more important than a cheeky snog is going on, but I still think um, some romance needs to be put back into the film. Perhaps we might go there with um, the the Han Solo story that's being made. I think that might be quite a nice uh, little bit of backstory for him. And but overall. There was much to love about the film. I really enjoyed the, the, the fanboy nods, seeing like Gold Leader and Red Leader and all those scenes coming back. I really enjoyed it. And, and I know a lot of people didn't like those little throwbacks, but I think that was part of the charm and the part of the enjoyment of the film. And just the, the overall look of it as well, the kind of the fact that there was a kind of retro vibe to it with moustaches. And I understand that um, one of the assistant directors was the son of the assistant director on the original film. And it had been kind of kept in the family that this guy's job was to boss and tell X-Wing pilots where to run. And little nuggets like that I really enjoyed. And overall, I thought it was a triumph, really. I had a thoroughly good time with it. 2016 has been not a great year for film. I'm going to do a roundup episode. But overall, I, this was a, a really nice way of ending the year. I, I was moved by the film. I was gripped by it. I love the fact that it's its own thing. It's a standalone film. And would I, I perhaps I would like to see Gareth Edwards come back and do another one, but for the time being, 
Um, I'm, I'm quite happy um, with the direction that these standalone films are going in, and long may they continue. And we're going to get these now for ages. It's going to be an exciting few years, I think. Um, the, the thing that's going to happen, and we have to kind of brace ourselves, is one of these films is going to be terrible. And uh, it, it's going to be interesting to kind of see the reaction to that. And I, I, Disney, I think, is a good home for Star Wars. I hope that they don't become too much like the Marvel films. Of course, there's the odd gem in there, but there is a nagging sense that they've become a little bit sterile. And I think Rogue One has given me enough to suggest that the people behind this are going to be a little bit bolder, and that can only be a good thing. So that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames Cast. I will be back very, very soon. Um, in the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. You can follow me on the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. And you can befriend me on Facebook. I am the Tom Jennings who is standing over the Giant's Causeway looking like he's having a wee. I wasn't. It was just incredibly cold. I was trying to take a picture and it was raining too hard. And what actually happened in the end was I lost the memory card of all the pictures on it anyway. So, um, yeah, a bit of a disaster that trip. But I will be back very soon. You can also get me on my other podcast, which is the Master Cinema Cast that I do with Eurokin Thiessen. We're on the Criterion Cast main themes there's many ways you can get hold of them there and in the interim great to be back and i look forward to hearing you and speaking to you again soon bye